You're listening to Dental Talk from VivaLearning.com. In today's Viva podcast, we'll be talking with Mary Gavoni about a very important topic, infection prevention. Mary is an internationally recognized speaker, author, and consultant, working with dental teams for more than 40 years on clinical efficiency, infection prevention, ergonomics, and team communication. She has a master's in business administration and is an RDH and CDA. Mary, thanks for joining us again on Dental Talk. Thank you for having me. So this topic is a huge one, and uh, every dental practice in the world, everywhere, needs to uh, really understand infection prevention and, and build a protocol system in their practice that adheres closely as possible to what is best practices. So my first question is, many dental professionals associate infection prevention protocols with OSHA compliance, yet we often hear that OSHA doesn't care about patient safety, only employee safety. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. The first thing to remember is that OSHA's charge and their only charge is employee safety. So they don't really say or have anything to say about patient safety in a, in a practice. The entity or the agency that has jurisdiction, if you will, over patient safety, well, there's two of them, actually. One is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and the other are the state dental boards and, to some degree, state and local health departments. And so they share some information. There are a lot of commonalities in what the CDC guidelines say versus OSHA bloodborne pathogens, but there's a very distinct line between OSHA compliance for protecting employees from infectious disease transmission and CDC, which is focused more on patient safety, although CDC emphasizes employee safety as well. So every dental practice as part of their OSHA compliance should have a copy of the either the federal or their state OSHA bloodborne pathogen standard, and they should have a copy of the most current CDC guidelines for infection prevention in dentistry. There's just a, a wealth of information available to dental practices on the CDC website at cdc.gov or cdc.gov. And if you just simply do a search for dental infection control or dental infection prevention, either term, you'll be able to pull up all of the guidelines that are there. The confusion I think that's happened in the past surrounds the, the use of the word guideline because many practices will read those documents and say, well, it's a guideline, it's a suggestion, we don't have to do it. However, most of the state dental boards across the country now have adopted either directly or by reference CDC guidelines as patient safety standards. So they have as much weight within the Dental Practice Act as the OSHA rules would be with their ability to cite or fine a practice for not following the, the OSHA rules. Yeah, and do you, so hopefully that is yeah, understandable. You think, no, that's uh, excellently described. What percentage of dental offices do you think are really not up to speed with their infection prevention? In my experience, I would say that it's a relatively low percentage of practices that are truly not doing as much as they should be doing to prevent um, an infectious disease transmission to a patient or protecting employees. I think most practices are are putting forth 
a good faith effort. They're doing the best they can with the knowledge that they have. It is always surprising to me how much misinformation or misunderstanding or lack of information there is out there about things like the frequency of spore testing of sterilizers or what what type of a face mask should I be wearing for a particular procedure? And that's why OSHA is so adamant about an annual training update so that people will stay current. The scary thing is that we're hearing more and more about infection control breaches in the news. Um, I just got a notification this morning about an infection control breach in Pennsylvania where a practice actually was closed down because of, as was described in the news feed, very unsanitary kinds of conditions. I think those are few and far between, but by the same token, I think there's some tweaking that probably could be done in most practices. Yes. We, we always have some work to do. How important is it for dental practices or facilities to have written infection prevention protocols? It's critical for a number of reasons. One is for OSHA compliance. So OSHA requires under the bloodborne pathogen standard that a written exposure control plan be completed and updated once a year and that all the, the housekeeping and standard operating procedures be documented. CDC also in the, the guidelines says that there should be safety protocols in place, but the real crux of the matter is that if a practice documents what they do, how it should be done, and why they do it, it's more likely to be followed. And I go into practices a lot and hear different team members say that, you know, they package instruments one way or they clean instruments another way or, oh, I didn't know we were supposed to be doing that spore test once a week. I thought it was once a month. And there's nothing written down that anybody can look at and say, oh, wait a minute, we said this is how we're supposed to do it. So there's no accountability for it. So those protocols are so very important, not only to protect the employees, but to protect patients and as a risk management tool for the practice, because you certainly don't want a patient to make some kind of an allegation to a dental board or a health department or to the media that they thought that the infection prevention was not good in the practice that they were going to and then have the practice have to dig their way out of a big black hole to prove that what they were doing was really okay. Yeah. And, and it really eliminates inconsistencies. Right, so having having these protocols written in a binder and available for everybody in the practice is certainly something you recommend strongly. Absolutely. And, and not only that, they serve as training and orientation documents for new employees. So many times new employees come on board and they're just kind of thrown to the wolves and they'll hear bits and pieces and snippets of information from one other team member or another, and they don't really get any kind of focused training on how things should be done and how are things are done in that particular practice. They may have brought some bad habits from another practice. They may have never worked in dentistry before, so they really don't understand what it is that they're doing. And so having those protocols in writing gives them something tangible they can read, they can look at, they can ask questions, and they know what is expected of them in terms of um, 
their job. When it comes to dental infection prevention training, is that something they have to do once a year based on the CDC guidelines, or is that a state board thing, or is it related to their relicensing? Um, and it, it may be all of the above. Mm -hmm. um, OSHA requires training once a year, annual training updates. There are many state dental boards that now have written into the rules that at least one or two CE hours have to be dedicated to infection prevention or infection control training. And then, of course, it is also recommended in the CDC guidelines as well. The one question that I hear a lot is, what about the administrative team? Do they have to participate in the training? And my answer is always yes. You could probably argue with OSHA that they're not performing any at-risk functions, and so they don't necessarily have to participate. However, they're at the front lines of informing patients. So if, first have, for example, there was some story on the news about uh, an infection control breach, we want the business team to be able to answer any and all questions about what we do in our practice for patient safety and and to be credible and not have to put somebody on hold and say, oh, let me go get somebody who can answer that question for you. And the other issue that we have in, in a lot of dental practices is that many times the administrative team will overlap into the clinical area. So if they're behind schedule, they need instruments processed or rooms turned over, they certainly need that infection prevention training for their own protection and to make sure that they're doing things appropriately. Yeah, and do you have any recommendation on how to take that training? Is on Because I know on VivaLearning.com, we have infection control, infection prevention training. Um, mm -hmm. You can go to a dental show and take it there or have someone come in. What, what is your recommendation on taking that training? Well, OSHA does not dictate what format the training has to be presented in. So it can be at a dental meeting. It can be on Viva Learning, some type of online learning. I think whatever is the the most accessible to those employees to be able to get the information that they need to stay current and stay updated. You can have somebody come in and do the training live in your practice. I do a lot of that with with the practices that I work with and go into their practice every year and do a training update. If somebody participates in a web-based training or something at a at a dental meeting, then they still need to go back and take that information and make sure they understand how it applies specifically to their practice and perhaps have some type of a meeting to discuss what they learned and, and if they need to make any kind of modifications. The important thing to remember is what we talked about a little earlier is no matter where the training takes place, it needs to be documented who participated in the training, the date of the training, and who presented the training, and what topics were discussed. Yeah. But web-based training, I think, is becoming a very, very popular uh, modality for people to be able to access that yeah, actually, education. Yeah, and I, and I can agree with that because I know on VivaLearning.com we have several uh, infection prevention classes, and they're being taken every day. Mm -hmm. Every single day they're being taken, 365 a year. It's it's incredible. So um, what is the most common infection prevention mistake that dental professionals are making today? 
I think the most common mistake or mistakes, perhaps plural, have to do with personal protective equipment. Eyewear, for example, a lot of team members will wear their prescription eyeglasses, which don't have any side shields, which don't necessarily meet the impact resistance that they need to for OSHA compliance. So they put themselves at risk of some exposure to spatter or splatter by inadequate protection of their eyes. I also see many people wearing face masks inappropriately. In fact, I just looked at the cover of a national dental hygiene publication where the hygienist on the cover is wearing her face mask down under her nose, which is so defeats the purpose of having the face mask on. There's no respiratory. She's the one with the ergonomics uh, deficiency. Same picture. Absolutely. (laughs) That whole whole picture was a nightmare. Like, raise my blood pressure a bunch of notches. Yeah. Yeah. They, they need to. So so the face masks are an issue. The other issue with face masks is not changing them after every patient because they are disposable items. And then not wearing the appropriate level of face mask. There's a rating on face masks called ASTM or American Society for Testing Materials. And there's three levels of particle filtration that need to be reviewed to see whether or not a procedure or a face mask is appropriate for a particular procedure. So the level three has a smaller particle filtration rate, and that should be done for the procedures like oral surgery, um, ultrasonic scaling that create the most aerosols. And the other thing I see is a lot of misuse of disposable items. If an item is sold, labeled, As a single use or disposable item, we don't clean it and put it in the cold sterile or run it through the autoclave and use it again. That's a federal law. The Food and Drug Administration says it's a violation of federal law to reuse disposable items. And there was, again, an issue in in one state a couple of weeks ago about some pediatric practices reusing some disposable items that we'll probably be hearing more about in future weeks. Last question before we wrap up this podcast, and and this was a phenomenal piece that we're doing here on infection prevention, is waterline problems. Can you just briefly talk about that? Because I hear about that a lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. The CDC guidelines say that dental unit water must be of essentially the same quality as public drinking water. So tap water or even distilled water will have a certain level of microbial contamination in it and the standard for public drinking water and dental unit water is that it can't have more than 500 colony forming units of heterotropic bacteria so we're not necessarily looking at what type of organisms are in that water but it can't have more than that level that's considered to be a safety level below that it it typically isn't making anybody sick from either drinking or being exposed to aerosolization of that water. So it's incumbent on a dental practice, number one, to test their water lines. The CDC says periodically, I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I would say at least once a year to make sure that they're below that 500 CFU limit. And they need to periodically put some type of a disinfecting solution in their lines to control the growth of the microbes that come from the biofilm, which is a sticky, slimy layer 
that forms inside of any pipe and particularly in the tubing in dental units. If they don't, they can put their patients at risk of either respiratory infections or other types of infections. We had an issue in California uh, last year in pediatric practices that um, the patients, many of the patients who had pulpotomy procedures done got bone infections from the contaminated water in the dental units, including a young girl who actually lost half of her mandible um, because of such a serious bone infection that couldn't be resolved. So whether there's a whole office filtration system, whether there's a separate water bottle on a unit that a disinfectant cartridge or tablets or solution can be placed in, whatever the makes the most sense for that practice given the equipment they have, it is incumbent on the practice to provide safe dental treatment water for patients. And if they're doing surgeries, then only sterile water or sterile saline should be used for irrigation. And it shouldn't come from the dental unit, it should come from a separate sterile water delivery system. Yeah, that's uh, super important to make sure that water quality is under control in a dental practice. Um, one last question before we wrap it up, and this is a, it seems like an odd question, but I've, I've heard this question asked on many continuing education uh, webinars and, and, and at dental shows regarding packaging instruments um, and putting the instruments into an autoclave, whether it's paper side up or plastic side up. Is there something, is there some protocol about that and also instrument drying real, I know real quick, because I know we don't have a lot of time. Just okay, sure. Touch on First that. of all, CDC says that all instruments must be packaged prior to sterilization. Typically the manufacturers of sterilizers, autoclaves in particular, will say to put the paper side down on the trays in the sterilizers so that the heat in the drying cycle can come up through the paper side to dry the packages. But dental teams should always consult the manufacturer or the manual for their sterilizer to make sure they're following the manufacturer's instructions for use. And that should include a recommendation for how we place the packages in to the sterilizer. Of, of As you said, paper side down. And that's just to get the the, dry, the heat coming from the bottom through the, exactly. through the instruments. And, um, and that was so. your other question, was about drying the packages. Yeah. The packages okay, there we go. never be taken <laughs> out of the sterilizer until they are completely dry. And if for some reason the packages aren't getting dry, then maybe that sterilizer needs to be serviced. Maybe there's something wrong with the, the dry cycle that's not functioning properly. Wet packaging taken out of the sterilizer can tear easily and then compromise the sterility of the instruments. And it also can act as a wick to actually draw contaminants into the package. Mm -hmm. So we need to be careful about preserving the sterility of the instruments just to the point of using them. Yeah. I mean, we, and we can go on for hours about all these topics and hopefully uh, down the road, we'll do some more with you on infection prevention. Thank you so much, Mary, for joining us. Um, before we end, uh, marygavoni.com is the website. That's M-A-R-Y. M-A-R-Y-G-O-V-O-N-I, G-O-V-O-N, N is in Nancy, I. That's marygavoni.com to get more information. Mary has got resources on, you have resources on your website and um, other information? I do, I yeah, do. So check that out. And uh, we really thank Mary for coming on. Uh, she's doing this as a pro bono thing for education. And uh, we really appreciate all the great insight that you've given us on infection prevention. Thank you so much. Thank you. 